this week on the Back Table Podcast. One of the things I want to get back to is the concept that physicians are executives already. So like anything that I get offered at this level after an MBA or Roger gets offered at this level, it's always going to be like at or near the C-suite. And what that means is that I need to understand financial statements or like financial Excel spreadsheets. I do not need to create them. Right. And so I think we get flummoxed about like not having business knowledge, but like the business knowledge that we really need to understand is like, how is the sausage made? And then we take our skills of, particularly as an IR, being operations, efficiency, all of this stuff. It's really about like, how are you going to build this out? So I feel like that we feel like we're handicapped, but we're not as handicapped as we think. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. All right, Backtable listeners, our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started using AG1 because my trainer used it or uses it, and uh, I asked him why, and he said, well, you know, I feel like I, I get faster recovery and I sleep better at night, uh, and so I learned more about it. And I actually got some free samples and I uh, started taking it. And then I told Mike and Sabine about it. What do you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I started taking AG1 because um, my brother-in-law, he was actually taking it for the past year and he kept on telling me how awesome it is. And then you asked me if I wanted to try it, Aaron. And, you know, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to yeah, I, I don't get some free I, samples, right? Exactly. Get yeah. some free samples. I, I don't have time in the morning to eat breakfast or anything. So I was like, this would be perfect. Let, let me give it a shot. So I started taking it because I am susceptible to peer pressure and you guys did it. And, and also because I got free samples, but uh, the free samples was a big part of that for me. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> you're taking some a supplement, you kind of want to ask me hey, what's in this stuff. Uh, well, with one scoop of AG1, you're actually absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. What exactly are adaptogens, Michael Brazza? Do you know? Uh, I think they come from space. <laughs> that sounds they, about they, right. They adapt technique. You suck the clot. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. They suck out they, the toxins. Yeah. Like you're doing a thrombectomy. to me. It's yeah, like it's yeah, a yeah. suck out thing. It's, <laughs> That's science. It yeah, all it's helps. green. It's I mean, it's literally green. I feel healthy drinking it because it's green. And and anything I see when they say superfoods or the smoothies there, it's like super greens. I mean, this thing is green. And it actually, to me, I like the taste. So well, it's green, it's, but you know, when you shake it up, it, it starts to turn kind of white a little bit. And I think that's the adaptogens that are that are alive in there and that are working. And I, I look, man, if it's in my head, it's working. That's right. And it does support mental clarity and alertness. And your subscription comes with a year supply of vitamin D, which is very important for us radiologists. Um, <laughs> yeah. since we, I know my, mine was like critically low, my vitamin D level when I checked it. Uh, so that helps. And it, it's, it comes in this little dropper. I just drop, you know, one little drop in my Topo Chico every day and I know I get <laughs> my vitamin D. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash backtablevi, as in vascular and interventional, 
Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash vi to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, back to the episode. Uh, this is Aaron Fritz as your host. Today we have a very special episode on talking about getting an MBA as a physician with special guests, Dr. Anissa Majid and Dr. Roger Tamihama. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks. Hey. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate this. Yeah. So this is a topic I've been wanting to cover for a while now as I've contemplated pursuing an MBA myself for a few years. I've heard mixed things it's from, you know, I was just having a conversation about this the other day with uh, my financial advisor. And so I think it depends on who you talk to. And like we were talking about just, just now is I think a the answer to a lot of these questions is, is, is that it depends. But but I do want to get to your guys' experiences, you know, including how you researched the MBA, Roger, and then Anissa having been through it, sort of, you know, what where you found the, the key benefits were on the on the other side. So um, first, let's start with introductions. I'm going to ask you guys where you're at, practice type, and then you can just briefly tell us like where you got, where you're doing your MBA or where you, where you got your MBA. Uh, Anissa, let's start with you. Sure. So I'm working with VIR Chicago. I uh, oh, kind nice. of unofficially do locums, but I'm kind of with them, um, yeah. helping them out full time, doing IR. And uh, so I'm based out of Chicago, and that's where I do my clinical practice. I also, um, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but uh, as Aaron knows, I'm kind of on the entrepreneurial track, whether I wanted to be or not. And um, so I'm the CEO of Zip Data, which is a tech digital tech company working to get rid of fax machines in healthcare. And I did my MBA at Kellogg. And finished in 2017. Very cool. And Anissa, you and I met here in Dallas when you were practicing here in Dallas. Yes. A uh, number of years ago. And uh, we've kept in touch over the years. And I think that was when you were traveling back and forth. And we'll talk a little bit about that, how you how you did your MBA. But uh, mm -hmm. that was right. You were traveling back and forth to Chicago, right? When you, when right, you finished to it. to do my MBA at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Roger... Tell us where you're at and uh, what, what, how you're pursuing your MBA currently. Yeah. My name is Dr. Roger Tomihama, and I'm an associate professor of interventional radiology at Loma Linda University School of Medicine. A um, little background on me, um, born and raised in Hawaii, so left Hawaii. I did my med school there, uh, left there in 2003, uh, did my residency at Yale Naaman Hospital from 2003 to 2007, and then uh, higher fellowship at the Brigham Women's Hospital subsequently. I've been in practice uh, about 18 plus years. Uh, initially, out of getting out of residency, uh, I was in the Navy as a Navy doc. I did radiology at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina and then bounced around from uh, in prior practice uh, for a couple of years. My wife was a vascular surgeon, so essentially I was following her wherever she went mm -hmm. for training. And then, uh, you know, was in prior practice academics and I've been in Loma Linda since 2016. Yeah. As far as my MBA, um, I'm just starting the whole process. I'm like, Anissa, yeah, I, I just started my first week at Wharton um, for the MBA program for executives at the University of Pennsylvania. So kind of brand new to the whole system, but yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about how that works logistically with you yeah. being a, a physician full-time and then trying to do that in, out of, you know, Wharton, obviously being out of Philly. Yeah. Um, it just real curious, is your wife, so she's a practicing vascular surgeon? Yep. Yeah. She's a vascular surgeon. Um, she's at the VA here in Loma Linda. Uh, she's okay. an academics. Like, uh, it's weird. Yeah. Like most people like 
I'm like the one person I have to follow my wife where she goes. Like she dictates. I'm the same way. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, what? We're moving from Santa Monica to Loma Linda. Okay. You know, it's like, yeah, but yeah. That's not a bad thing. No, (laughs) (laughs) no, I feel you though. I followed my wife's ENT career too. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, all right. Well, great. And so Anissa, I want to start with you since Mm -hmm. you received your MBA a few years ago. Tell us what led you to want to pursue it. And how did you go about searching and deciding on the program that you, and any mentors, did any mentors help you with the decision? Yeah. So I am, I'm going to tell the story like, uh, which is, I think things happen in seven year intervals. Uh, that's kind of the cadence of life. And so I finished uh, in 2003 training and, you know, I'll just say my age, I was 32 at the time. And you know, uh, when you're in the startup world, everything is five-year plans, like everything goes on a five-year plan. And and that's kind of what was explained to me from my mentors in fellowship, which was, hey, listen, it takes a year for everybody to get to know you. And then the second year, everybody's comfortable and you're comfortable. And then the third year, you're starting to run and four, five, and, you know, four and five, you're like established, right? So when you kind of get to established in your group or your practice at five years, when you get to seven years, you kind of look up and start looking around and being like, so is this it? Is it uh, this practice? Is it leadership here? Is it, is there something else? You know, I, I think that's just normal life for everybody, whether, whatever, we'll put it in the context of a practice, but I think that happens in industry all the way across the board as people are constant looking to grow. So around that time, um, Obamacare came out or was being talked about or all of that stuff. And uh, the more I heard about it, the more I read about it, I was like, what what is it that's going to be required to navigate this next stage? As Mm -hmm. I'm going into practice or leaderships of practice or running groups or what, like what, I just felt like there was going to need to be more. And, And the way it was being talked about was like, do I need a law degree? to be able to understand how to practice medicine. And, and that kind of started the search of, I just kind of felt like I, ne- I wasn't quite sure how I was going to navigate medicine yeah. with a lot of things that were coming down the pipe. And so that's when I started thinking about what do I need to do to like be successful in medicine. And it was several years later before I actually pulled the trigger on it. So yeah. You, I think most professionals and physicians think about this for a much longer time because there's never a good time to do it, you know? Yeah. And so as I kind of went through the search, it was like, well, you know, do you need a law degree? Laws always interest me. How would that work? And then I was like, no, that's just silly. And then, um, but then, you know, some of my peers who were in academics got masters of healthcare administration or mm-hmm. I was the chairman when I was in um, the group before MTBIR and I was invited to go and participate at the Harvard School of Public Health for their chiefs, you know, chiefs of departments program for two weeks. And so when I was there, it was very much about leadership and how do you run departments and all this stuff. And it was all academics. I was the only person from private practice. But I was like, well, why would you, you know, obviously they're promoting their programs. And I was like, well, what, what is a master's of public health? Like, I don't think I ever really explored any of these other degrees, you know, like I knew that they were out there, but I was so focused on being a doctor and like just getting through residency that I was like, well, I don't know about these other degrees, but like, what does public health do for you? Like, is that really something to pursue? And, you know, ultimately I was like, well, I don't want to be an administrator and I don't want to be a public policy 
I'm not a policy person. Like, I understand that it's important, but I'm not the person who's going to grill down into those details and stuff. And so I kept coming back to the MBA and uh, I actually did the ACR Radiology Leadership Institute when they first came out and they were both held at Kellogg the first two years. And I got a sense from that, those four days of what it's like to be in a professional school, like how the teaching is different, how if you go for executive education, you're getting full professors. And I was in, I was engaged, you Hmm. know, in those four days each time with these topics, um, just fully. Uh, which I don't think any of us are fully when we go to conferences. I mean, right. you know, yeah. you're kind of yeah. sitting and you're sitting yeah, in the yeah. back and all this stuff. Yeah, so um, yeah. I'm from Chicago. And so I remember finishing like the first, the second week and saying to my family, I was like, I, I think I need to get an MBA. And to me, the MBA was, of all the degrees that were out there, the most versatile. Mm-hmm. Right. In terms of like a law degree, like a lot, of, a lot of people get law degrees and they don't practice and they go into other things, but they have that degree. And for me, two things I knew. I knew that I wanted to be involved in leadership and that like leadership was my passion after doing those two things because I think leadership is uh, how you set culture and that's how you get build good businesses. And then you needed to kind of have the business sense. And so when I finally pulled the trigger on it, I was 45 and we had just started MTVIR. And so here I was nine months into starting a practice from scratch I felt like I was running by the seat of my pants, trying to, based on what I had observed, do what I thought was better, but really not, just really like, I don't know what's going on. And then um, I also feel like uh, medicine is changing every second. And I didn't have anybody to really mentor me on the business side of like, are we doing this right? Is there a better way? Can we be more efficient? I think that that's how IRs think. Like we're very operational and we're, how are we uh, efficient and stuff like that. And so, so what made me pull the trigger then were three things. One, I had started this practice and I felt like I needed help just mentoring. I needed, I needed a place to go and ask questions. And two, we were just in the beginning parts of zip, zip data at that time of zip rad. And Texas isn't really known for its entrepreneurial world. It's getting better, but you need networks to build a a startup. And I felt like going and getting an MBA, you get a network uh, of different people that could help with that. And three, probably, I mean, I hate this question. I wasn't asked it too many times in my life, but that question of like, where will you be in five years? Where will you be in 10 years? And for the first time in my life, I was asked that question about like, where would you be in 10 years? And I was like, not doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and so then the question is, if you're not doing this, what is it that you will do? Right. right. Where will you go? How do you get there? And so to me, the MBA or any professional degree, if you kind of know, like you're a policy person or administration or whatever, is something that allows doors to open that you don't know exist mm-hmm. that can help you get to what is your next step. And again, I pulled the trigger at 45. And so the other thing I would say is that careers have halftime. Like you, even though we live in this society that's like fast, 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 and who's going to get to their billion as fast as possible and all of these things. And some 29-year-old is on Instagram and they're making $5 billion. 
that's not like reality, right? The reality yeah. is, is most people have to go through and they learn and they become experts in their fields and stuff. And then they get to the top of their game of whatever their game is. And they're like, halftime, what's my next phase? Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, because you were chairman of your the radiology department at Methodist, yeah. right? So yeah. you had reached that goal. That was like the pinnacle, right? And then you went yeah. off and started your own practice, which again, not like very few people were doing at that time. So very entrepreneurial, yeah. very, you were kind of, you know, trailblazers in that sense here in Dallas, created a hundred percent IR practice, right? Also something mm -hmm. that, and this was what, 10 years ago, nine years ago? This was, guys... uh, we started in 2014. Yeah. So again, yeah. before all everybody else is creating OBLs now, but back then you guys were really uh, kind of cutting edge doing that. And so I could see how you were constantly thinking about what's the next thing? What, you know, what do I want to do that's going to allow me to evolve not only in, in, as a physician, but you had this entrepreneurial spirit that you wanted to continue to feed, and right? To be, to be honest with you, like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs out of uh, situation, not necessarily yeah. because they're like crazy and they're going to say, I'm going to stop this to go do that. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're going to start a practice, that is 100% entrepreneurship. You know, you are starting from zero, you're starting from an idea, a vision, and you're going to go and build it. And we had some idea of what a practice involved, you know, like who we needed to help and insurance and all this stuff. But really, you're really like, I mean, most of us join practices and there's this black hole where other people handle that, right? Yeah. And when you yeah. are going to like take on that responsibility, now we t talk about it in terms of the OBL, it doesn't really matter. There, that is a huge, steep learning curve For of sure. not only like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to hire people? How are we going to keep them? You know, because every time you lose a person, that's costly. You yeah. know, you waste time, you lose and all that stuff. And so I, I know everybody looks at me like an entrepreneurial spirit. I feel like I do things out of need. And I think that that's something that IRs really very much relate to, that they, they adapt. And they're yeah. always kind of thinking mm -hmm. at the next step. And you're always thinking like, you know, when you go and plan a case, you're like, you're, you're thinking it all the way through. So you're like three steps forward for what you're going to ask your tech for. Yeah. I, I, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I love that background. Thank you for giving us that and telling us, you know, the main reasons uh, that you decided to pursue the MBA. Roger, we're going to jump to you with a similar question. You know, where, tell us, you know, you're, you're, start, you're currently starting your program how did you research and decide on this program and any advice on how to choose? Yeah. Um, I started with no knowledge, like zero. Like I, you know, I didn't know where to begin. I felt lost. The three, I think three sources were really helpful for me is like, first, just people I know who had MDs and MBAs. That's one. The second was general MBAs. And third was just the internet, like websites and YouTube. Um, so the first thing I did was I tried to find all the people like Anissa, like how I knew, like I, one of my former attendings is Howie Foreman. He's like a MBA at Yale School of Management. And so I called him up first. Like, hey, you know, I'm thinking of getting an MBA, you know, you know, this is what I think I want to do. What do you think and where to start? Um, I talked to a couple of them, my class of friends that I knew from residency or from practice. One guy was a urologist, uh, ended up leaving urology, went to MIT to get his MBA. Uh, he's now in bi like a medical startup for drug development. Another person was a radiation oncologist I knew. She 
was from Penn, but then I was here in California. I went to Wharton and got her executive MBA, and she's like in the R&D space for drug development, medical device development for cancer research. And I have another friend who was uh, who went to UCLA for his MBA after being an internal medicine guy for a number of years, and he you know, was in. So basically, you know, I, I call all these guys first, ask them like, hey, why did you choose your program? What did you look? Did you have a specific goal in mind? You know, and they were really helpful and really you know, giving me their rationale and it really, you know, opened up an idea of like what to expect. Um, the second group of people I talked to was that I didn't think would be helpful, but who actually were was like the general MBA folks. Like, you know, most of these guys are, you know, went to the full-time program or part-time program and, you know, they may not have specific information about how an MBA will help a doctor. But what I really found helpful was their understanding of the culture of business school the culture of business industries in general and how it operates. Cause you know, we in medicine, we know the culture, like, you know, there's residents and med students, the attendings and right, techs and nurses, and you know, the insider workings, but yeah, like to me, like the whole business thing is like a big black box. Like I, you know, I know that somebody makes money, somebody loses money, somebody, you know, whatever. and so you don't really know the operations and how like the culture works. And so I thought they were really helpful. They told me like I had guys who went to you know, business school and they said, okay, yeah, this is what they're looking for. This is what kind of you expect. The whole networking thing. I was like, okay, what does that mean? What does the network mean? You know, and um, that's sort of helpful. Um, and the third thing I just used to get information was I, you know, I deep dived the whole internet on this whole process. Like I went to every single website I found, like I found that like the GMAT club website, Poets and Quants are these, you know, MBA school specific websites, very helpful. Soup to nuts information on everything you need to know about like admissions, test prep, experiences, you know, they talk about rankings, uh, profiles, articles, they had everything that, and that was a great starting point. Um, and then, yeah, then I also went to the program specific websites. So any program that I was looking at, like I I went to every single program and, you know, they had great information on there that I wouldn't have expected. I thought it was all going to be just like a little, hey, blurb about these are our faculty. This is how much they're renowned for, blah, blah, blah. But there was a lot of stuff on like testimonials from like current students, old students, you know, and really helpful just getting a little glimpse of what to expect. And yeah, yeah so that's Quick how question. I started. Do, yeah. do you, as a physician... Do you feel, and this kind of goes for both of you guys, do you feel like we have an advantage in terms of getting into like a top tier program or is it you're, you're just the same as anybody else What your, your GMAT score? And like, I mean, do you think physicians have an advantage in getting into a, you know, a, a, a better program basically? This is my opinion. I think yes, um, only because, you know, we're underrepresented. Um, and so this is, goes back to the culture. Like I apparently I learned that, you know, like if you're, and software engineer from India in like your late twenties, that's like a huge demographic apparently of representative of people. And so for those cohorts, you have to be like at much higher. They're looking at for diversity in terms. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think medicine, like for the doctors, I think it's usually like 5% of any MBA class. And so we're kind of underrepresented. And a, a good example is that like, you know, um, a lot of top, MBA programs might waive the GMAT requirement for MDs. Like it's, oh, wow. it's so that's a, an indication. I think that hey, they want more of you guys to come here. And they stuff. know you got to med school. You're smart enough. I, yeah, I just have to say, like the amount of research that Roger did is like 99 percent more than what I did. Um, and, and that uh, I mean, I basically was like, 
once I realized that I was like, I need an MBA or this is what's going to be right for me. Mm -hmm. And I was like desperate because we had MTVIR going and I felt like, oh my God, what if we fail this? Blah, blah, blah. I was pretty much like, I'm from Chicago. I know what Kellogg's like. Yeah, yeah. Kellogg's outstanding. Amazing I'm going to go, I'm going to go to Kellogg. I will say though, I did ask a lot of people who had done online MBAs mm -hmm. versus in-person MBA. And there is a big difference with that. And you can, there's a ton of ways of getting your, your MBA now. And to a person that I talked to about online MBAs, they said it was great. It probably took the same amount of time, but the relationships that you build in person that allow you to grow out after the MBA with the, your class and then also with your professors is so much richer to go in person. Mm -hmm. So, Roger, are you going back and forth or are you doing mostly online? Yeah, no, I'm going uh, every uh, twice a month. So at Wharton, they have uh, they actually have two campuses. So they have their Philly campus and then they have a San Francisco campus. And so oh. I'm going to San Francisco two two weekends a month. Well, that's essentially. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So much closer. And that's what it worked out for Kellogg. You go two weekends. Yeah. Well, they, they, again, they have two campuses and it's what I call the mothership in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And then they have their second campus in Miami. And so like from Dallas, it's just so much easier to go to Chicago. And I just wanted to go home, Yeah, you know, twice, yeah. A, twice a month. And I absolutely would not trade it. I would, I would also say that I could have made it easier on myself, right? I could have gone to SMU or UTD right. Um, right. and made it easier on myself. And I think, you know, there were a couple of things that kind of came into play. And, and one is... I didn't know the answer to number three, which was, if not this, then what? And some of my questions was like, would a higher tier school get me more options? I think mm -hmm. that's yes. I did look at Wharton, California, but I, I wasn't going to take the GMAT because I suck at standardized tests and I always have. And it's amazing Same I'm a doctor here. because Same I here. barely made it through any of those. And uh, and I did it when you had to circle the pencils. So um, so, so Kellogg didn't uh, make you take the GMAT. Oh, that's and awesome. Have yeah. to take the GMAT. Yeah. And so, but whereas if I had applied to University of Chicago, they it didn't matter. Like everybody had to take it. So yeah. Um, so there are schools that don't require the GMAT, particularly for physicians. I would answer your question to say that physicians are looked at at higher tier schools and all schools because in my class of what. 70 or 80 people, there were four of us. Mm. Uh, it's very, very low in terms of the representation. And right. then I, I would also say, I'll tell you honestly, like I talked to a lot of people and one of the people I talked to was the head of a huge state oncology practice. And we were nine months into MTVIR and he had been a mentor like through some of it. And I talked to him He's older, much older than me. And I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about getting an MBA. What do you think? And he's like, oh, you've already done it. I wouldn't do it. And I said, well, you got an MBA. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, why did you get an MBA? And he's like, well, I just felt like healthcare was changing really rapidly. And I felt like I needed a little bit more. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, when did you get your MBA? And he's like, two years ago. <laughs> and I said, but you've been doing this for 10 years. You've been yeah. doing it for 12 years now. You got two years ago. And I said, I just found that curious. And I was like, well, if this guy who's been running this multi-location, huge state oncology practice, after 10 years of running it, was felt like he needed an MBA. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I probably need right. to worthwhile and do this. But my other thing was, you know, 
my experiences as a minority female going through life, right? And so I think also I've always had to, you always have to kind of take your step up a little bit to compete. You know, it's a very different experience to be underrepresented minority and underrepresented minority female versus being white male or white female in terms of like whatever halftime is. And, you know, my halftime to the next phase includes like possibly sitting on a paid board position, possibly being involved with uh, advisor on VC or PE firms or who knows. And there's a lot of people who want to do that. And so how does how does my healthcare experience and me and my experience with my MBA help that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that through our whole discussion today really comes through. It's like it depends. It's like, well, before you can decide MBA or not, like, what is it that you want to pursue and will this help you get there? Right. And what I want to actually dive into based off that, Anissa, is um, there are different types of MBAs out there. And um, Roger, can you tell the audience and me as well, like, what are the different types of MBAs that are out there and and why did you choose the one that the path you took? Yeah, no, great question. Obviously, I had this exact same question, like, you know, so I think the first step to look at obviously is to look at whether you want to do an sort of like this MB MD specific MBA versus a traditional MBA EMBA program. Um, so I think these MD specific programs, and there are only a handful of out of out there, like at like a, a different university, like I think Brandeis has one, University of Tennessee. They're like these MD specific or MB exclusive MBA programs, and. That's one way to go. The other way to go is your traditional, you know, go to Kellogg, University of Chicago, Wharton, whatever. And, you know, so the MD specific, I looked into it, um, you know, and I think it's obviously they're all physicians. So, you know, it's great, I think, for those individuals that are, I think, really interested in like maybe just advancing within healthcare management, you know, be optimizing their practices, you know, maybe healthcare policy, just truly refining the tools necessary to be a better administrative executive doc md essentially sort of and I, I think it's probably a nice like a hybrid between like an mba and an mha as anise had mentioned you know really gonna give you specific tools that'll be really helpful for the future as opposed i think the traditional mba programs are probably those best for those people like you guys you know like you uh who are you know entrepreneurs you know maybe interesting pivoting outside of clinical medicine you know starting a company you know working in biotech I think the reason those would be helpful is because you have your network and alumni come from all industries at all levels and from all over the country. And so you just, mm-hmm. you, you get this vast level of resources that you will never get anywhere else. And I think that's the first thing to look at as whether you want MD specific versus traditional. Um, the second thing to consider is the different types of programs. So as you guys mentioned, you know, there's like the full-time program, which is the traditional, like in your twenties. There's the there's a part time program. There's an executive MBA program, and then there's the online. And each of these are actually quite different in uh, what they may provide you and what you can get out of it. So I didn't know this. Like I thought, okay, MBA, yeah, part time, full time, probably all the same. But um, what I didn't realize is like the demographics is a big factor on like your network and your cohort is quite different. So. Apparently the, you know, the full-time program and the part-time programs are really composed of the individuals who were like, you know, like they, they're out of college, maybe one or two years, work for a little while at some banking firm and then getting their MBA and going to finance or something. 
So they, they're like in their 20s and 30s, you know, usually like three to five years of work experience. And, you know, usually looking as an MBA to springboard into another industry, like in venture capital or some, some really hardcore, real, like what I think of as business. The other side is the, this executive MBA where they're like an older cohort, sort of like, yeah, I'm 46, by the way, Nisa. So I started just as like, I'm with you. I, I'm like too old for school. But I'm like, you know, um, different crowd. Yeah. This is like your thirties to forties, you know, mid to upper level management folks, um, you know, usually established as families and it's a different group. And I, when I was looking to applying a good example is I, I was applying to Applied to use uh, Berkeley and uh, like they had like the part-time and executive and I was like oh maybe I'll do the part-time because it's fully online I'm like oh that's great you know like maybe I just I won't have to travel but you know as I was speaking to the admissions people say oh you know well you probably might be better in the executive program because you're a little older than all these folks and so you you won't have much to not relate but I think you'll you'll glean a lot more and so I didn't even know that I didn't even know that there was like a difference. And so it was really eye-opening to hear, you know, the culture of what these programs are like. Because yeah, it's like I, a lot I, of projects, right? Aren't you doing like a lot of group projects and you said stuff like that? Well, I, I mean, just to, um, to, to take off from where Roger left off. So my personal feeling is I, I outright say don't do the healthcare MBA. Because again, if you are mid-career and you're thinking about doing this, you want to get as much out of it that is going to help you. You like you want to squeeze everything out of this. Mm-hmm. You're going to pay for it. Yeah. Um, however you're going to pay for it. I, I it, you know, Kellogg is not inexpensive, but I don't you know, think any you, of them are, right? Yeah you, yeah. you know, you have to remember what you you buy. You know, I bought the Kellogg network with the which mm-hmm. is I can tell you is outstanding as an alumni network. Morton's not that much difference. And so you already know healthcare. You already know all of that. You already kind of are living it, breathing it, all that stuff. To sit in a room with other people who are in other industries that are executives. We're executives. We don't get treated like executives, but we are executives in our world. And that is where like, you really kind of have to go because they're all middle manager above. And the whole purpose that all those people from other industries are sitting there is for them to take another step up into either their, their organization or somewhere else. And that's no different than what a physician would be wanting to do. They're about to take another step somewhere. Maybe it's leadership in the hospital, their group, starting to practice, whatever. And to be able to sit in there and hear from other executives who have a culture problem, had a supply chain problem that maybe we have to navigate. Like we have to navigate a supply chain problem right now with contrast, right? All of these things, how they troubleshoot it, how they think about it, how they approach it to get that and be able to bring it back into healthcare, in my opinion, is far more valuable. Even if your whole goal is to stay as a clinical doctor for the, you know, with some side stuff to go forward is so much more valuable than to so with a bunch of other doctors or a bunch of other healthcare people who we all know the problem, where you can fall into a groupthink, whereas when you go into the executive program, you get to learn so many other ways that are out there. And and the other thing is, is that there are also some things that are adjuncts to MBA, right? So there's the American Association of Physician Leaders. You can go through AAPL and basically take a lot of their courses. It's less expensive and have like 
you know, get the business basis of it all and leadership training. Um, and a lot of those people who have done it are administrators or practice managers or have moved on to insurance companies or healthcare. And so if that's really something that you want to do and, and kind of not want to have to put that money down, you can kind of do that and, and move forward. You know, you can get business information from Coursera, you know, mm. for free right. uh, as well. But you're not going to get the network and you're not. And there's a lot to the projects. So what projects do, and Roger's just at the beginning of us. So like all of, I had a group that I just went through two years with together. And we had assignments that your assignments are all by group. And if you think about it, that's how life happens. Life happens in team play and group presentations, right? Like we work in teams all the time. It's really about teams. And so by doing these projects in groups, you develop leadership skills. You develop, you know, like I had somebody who was a vet. I had somebody from real estate. I had somebody who worked in cybersecurity. I had somebody who was an actuarial. Then there was me. And we had to divide up and write papers, write memos. Who's going to be the writer? Who's going to be the editor? Who's going who's gonna to do all these calculations? Who's going to, you know, I'm not the Excel expert math person. Right. Like, that's Everybody's not me. That's not my points. strengths, you know. Yeah. But there were other people. And how do we put that and put the best put for, forward? And you take those skills, and maybe we should have them. But, you know, you take those skills back and you apply them into your day-to-day -day life and you start making your life more efficient. Yeah. So that's that's really, you know, it's the cohorts of it all. But, you know, I, I, I would not, as as painful as it was to at that particular time, because we were traveling not just Dallas, but, you know, our group covered Midland, Texas, and then to fly to Chicago, I loved every weekend away because... I got to be away from healthcare. Nobody bothered me for that week. I yeah. just got to absorb knowledge. And again, anybody who's looking at this, you're, you're mid-career, Roger's mid-career, you know, like maybe going from early to mid-career, you're really looking at halftime, right? You're looking yeah. at like, what's going to be the next step? And, and halftime doesn't mean you have to leave clinical practice. It doesn't mean you have to leave healthcare. It doesn't, it, it's just... It's when you get when you start looking at halftime, there's actually a book called Halftime that you can get that talks about this. It's about saying, I've gotten to this level of expertise. How do I craft my life now? Yeah. Instead of me being told I have to do residency and then fellowship and get a job and then I have these things and then I get to be a partner and then like where things are kind of told to you and you're kind of going through this program. How do I get to take all this and craft my life to the things that I'm more passionate about. For me, it was leadership. And and that's the other thing I think people don't realize is that everybody thinks it's all business, but it's really about, but I'll make a, I, I, will, I will say this because it was said to me the first day and this is how I knew. I, I only applied to Kellogg. I had done those things. I was going back to Chicago. I didn't look at any of this stuff. I didn't research faculty. I probably should have. I, I just didn't. I was just like, it's Kellogg. But the first day that I was there, and I'm sorry, Roger, but this is, you know, business schools, they brag amongst each other. But anyway, the first day I was there, my um, the purpose of Kellogg is to their mission is to educate, equip and inspire the next generation of leaders. And, you know, our dean sat there the first day and said, hey, listen, if you're here about because you want to figure out how to make the most money, go to Wharton or University of Chicago. Mm. You will make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, you are physicians and doctors yeah, yeah. and your middle management, your executives, you're going to make money. We are about who's going to lead the future. Yeah. I like that, though. I like that philosophy. 
Yeah. So for for me, that was that was value alignment. And I think that a lot of people, when you start looking at halftime and what's what is my next step and is a a formal degree next step, it's about, well, where do I want to go? And are my values aligned with that or am my values not aligned with how things are happening here? And how do I make that transition to something else where everything kind of falls in line and my values and my passion fall together? Yeah, so I guess that raises the question of like, how do you get a sense of the culture of an MBA program, you know, ahead of time? And Roger, I know you were searching online and asking people. Yeah. And Anissa, you kind of just made a move based off of like, you know, the reputation and the the, the location. It, it, it turned out to be a good fit. The best thing I heard was one of my classmates called all the alumni networks of the schools he was interested in. Okay. And called, and this is going to be another plug for Kellogg. I'm shameless when it comes to <laughs> Kellogg, but anyway, um, but uh, it's a marketing branding school. What can I tell you? Um, <laughs> but uh, he called all the alumni networks to find out what it was like to go to, and that's the best. I think that's the best. People ask me about Kellogg all the time. You know, a couple of docs I know have gone to Wharton. They've done either the Philadelphia or the California Same. campus. And for docs, I think that's where most people end up is at Wharton or Kellogg or, you know, University of Chicago or something like mm-hmm. close by. But yeah, yeah. at the top tier stuff, you can't do Harvard unless you want to give up two years because mm. they don't have any sort of executive program. But I think calling and talking to the alumni network. And so he he lived in California. He flew out to Kellogg. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what? You could have gone to Wharton. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you could have gone to Wharton in San Francisco. It would have been so much simpler. And he's like, you know. I called all the alumni networks and the alum, the two, the only school where every single alumni that I reached out to called, set up a phone call or whatever was Kellogg. Mm-hmm. And uh, they told me the most about the school. But I think that that's probably the best way to get your handle on culture. I think Roger will tell you, like, you don't really know till you get there, yeah. like what it's going to be like. Yeah. And it's, it's like drinking out of a fire hose for a little bit yes. until you get, until you get your bearings on it with yeah. the travel and kind of the amount of work. Um, it's about 10 hours of work a week. Cause you have to do your work. Everybody's got to read the cases. Everybody's got to do, you know, a little bit. And then it's like, who's writing, who's doing the math, who's, you know, all this. And then yeah. you have a couple of team discussions. So it's not like it's not burdensome to do mm-hmm. it, but it's still, um, it, uh, it, it, it's drinking from the firehouse right when you get started. So I want to talk a little bit about time and monetary commitment. So Anissa, yours was a two-year program? 18 months. Yeah. 18 months. Okay. And, and mm-hmm. then Roger, how long is your program? Yeah, it's full 24 months. Yeah, yeah. They, they stretch months. it out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But it's two weekends a month during that whole period. Yeah, so uh, there's different formats like that uh, Anissa kind of attests to. Like there's, uh, you know, like the time commitment is varied based on different schools and different programs. So actually a great example when I looked into Kellogg's program is they have the Evanston campus does two weekends a month, but the Miami campus does one week a month. Like they'll do longer. So, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, different programs have like a different structure set up. So Berkeley was once a week, once a month. You know, you know, Chicago, Wharton, some of the other programs twice, twice a month. So it's, uh, I can, I can only attest to just starting and I, about the time commitment. And I, I think, I think Anissa is probably right. At least 20 hours a week. Like we had to, I didn't even start yet. And I had like 
pre-reading assignments, like I was like, I was drowning. Like it was like, yeah. I was say, two weeks to prepare for like three classes. And we had for just a good example. I, and so the Warren program is, they kind of pride themselves of having an exact same experience as a full-time MBA. Like we actually had the same classes, same requirements, same test structure as a full-time MBA, but we're doing it on two days a month. I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, after one week at Penn, like for the first week, I'm having, I go back and have a midterm for accounting. And I'm like, I have never seen an accounting class in my life. And now I have a midterm after five days of classes. Oh I'm gosh. like, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, but yeah. It's, it's like super uh, accelerated, sounds like. What it makes you do is learn time management better than you ever thought. Yeah. Um, because people are married, people have kids, people leave their wives or partners behind for a weekend with their kids and who knows how many soccer games or birthday parties and all that stuff. And they balance it. And I'll tell you, there's no right time to do it. Yeah. You just have to, at some point, say this is when pull you're going to have to pull the trigger. But when you're done, you have all this time and you manage time even better uh, that you can kind of do more things. I will say that it also depends on how you learn. So for me to only do one weekend a month, I will have forgotten everything from those lectures, been like totally overwhelmed, have so much in front of you for the next weekend where there might be a test or there might be something due. Whereas like two weeks, every two weeks kind of kept me pretty honest to do it, but also kept the learning pretty consistent mm -hmm. because your everyday life can interfere, I mean, so quickly yeah. um, to be able to give your attention. And then in cost, cost is going to be one of the things that like could be a deterrent, right? Because mm. it really depends on, you know, it's one thing is time, but other thing is cost. You know, a lot of people are coming out, they're still paying student loans and stuff. So, you know, Kellogg's a heavy cost. Kellogg's like two, 200K. And Wharton's not that much different. But, yeah. you know, if you're local and you go to SMU or UTD, mm -hmm. that's they're both reputable. And I think that I think it's also a question of like, like for law schools, like if you want to practice in that state, they say go to a law school in that state. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very, very specific. And I think it's really like, well, hey, I know I'm never going to leave Colorado. So maybe University of Colorado is fine. Right. Then, you know, because you're never going to leave Colorado, you're going to get what you want out of it. They're going to have a network and all that stuff. But if you think I want it to open as many doors as possible, well, then you're going to climb the tiers a little yeah. bit. And then that cost is going to is going to kind of be there. And then, of course, you you can also see about taking some. I don't know how much executive MBAs do this, but they're are courses to take like the AAPL or other like kind of, you know, certificates and stuff that you could possibly present to say, to say, to like possibly get credit. But most of the top tier schools, they want you to feel like you had the rigor of an MBA school. So Kellogg is no different. And and, and I think just like uh, uh, Wharton, Roger, correct me if I'm wrong, but Kellogg starts September or January. Mm -hmm. And there are four, you know, there's two cohorts, Evanston, Miami. And there's in each time. So in a year, full four cohorts are going all the way through. And then it and they overlap. Some of those overlap. So we worked with the Miami campus electives uh, is something that we didn't really get to talk about so far. But like some of the cool things about electives for these higher tier schools is they're international schools. 
So you have international electives. So I went to Hong Kong for a week. I mean, oh, you know, we awesome. went to Canada. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. Israel. You get to talk about businesses, Germany, all that stuff. And I think that's another attraction to Kellogg is it, it's a, a global school. So yeah. there, there's Global Network Week. So all the international people come to Evanston campus for three weeks over August. And then all the U.S. students will do at least one international elective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much here. And as we're coming up on the hour, what I want to do is, and Roger, I think it would honestly, so I want to give Roger a chance to plug his YouTube channel because he's he's doing these tutorials as he goes through the process. But Roger, it sounds like Anissa would be a great guest on one of your YouTube shows. Yes. Um, just to help kind of run through, you know, the process itself and like the some of the, these advantages. Um yeah, and definitely. but uh, yeah, please tell the audience, Roger, a little bit about like why you started the channel and um, what your plan is for it as you go through the process of getting an MBA. I think probably you know as with maybe how similar to the way you started back table. You know, I I just I felt there was like there's so much great information out there that we just don't have access to because they're kind of anecdotal and there's like no books about it or you know. And so I just like you know I as I was prepping this process last year I. I spent hundreds of hours just like talking to people, researching websites and looking at videos. And I just felt like there's got to be a better way. Like I want to save the the next generation of classes, you know, I have MDs like, hey, you don't have to do what I did. I'm going to save you all this. I'm going to condense it down to the high yield points, like first aid for getting into MBA program. That, that was the goal. Yeah. And so, you know, um, I just wanted to make sure it's simplified for the next generation of folks so they don't have to do what I did. Yeah, I essentially wanted to, I created a series of like, right now I'm at six videos or something like that, where it was just like, you know, the basics on like, okay, first episode one was like how to get started. Like, okay, this is what I did. This is what you can look for. This is in, you know, and then second video was like, okay, these are the factors that a doctor should consider in choosing an executive MBA program pros and cons of these different factors, the, the types of programs, the schedules, the locations, just like in these, you know, I, I did it all. And I figured I'm just going to, I'm going to give it to somebody, spoon feed it on a silver platter so they don't have to do it. And, you know, third episode was like the steps to applying what you need to do with requirements, the timeframes, all, again, all the cultural stuff about the MBA admissions process, which is like, just like the med school admissions process, right? We all learned in college, oh, you got to volunteer. You got to take your MCAT on by your third year. You got to do, you know, something and, you know, same thing. I just wanted to make sure it's simplified. And so that's all. I wanted to make it simplified for the next generation. I had really no plans to like become like, I just wanted to get it out there for people. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. No, we appreciate that. And and uh, I, I, I've i enjoyed the, the, the videos and thank you for putting those out there and yeah. looking forward to watching the process and live vicariously yeah. through you going through this MBA program. You know, I just have a final question for you guys, and then I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you for any final thoughts. But, you know, and Roger and I talked about this previously is as a physician and, you know, phys- I guess physician entrepreneur and having had some ventures in, in uh, you know, both uh, in, in practice as well as with Backtable, I feel like this constant uh, chronic insecurity of not really knowing much about business, right? Uh, we get zero training in business uh, in medical school. Um, I, I was talking to some dentists the other day and, and they just seem so much more business savvy. And I feel like it's part of their training because they're more likely to go out and start their own practice. Right. Um, but for physicians, you know, we're almost like set up to just become employees. 
And how can we curtail that without feeling this need to get an MBA? Is, you know, should business be part of the medical school curriculum? I think so. But at the same time, you know, if you're truly want to be a physician, executive, physician, entrepreneur, it sounds like from what you guys are telling me, an MBA is the best way to go, despite the the time and monetary commitment. And there's no there's no real good time, right? But I, Anissa, I want to know, like, what are your thoughts on, you know, just overall business knowledge amongst physicians and what we can do if somebody doesn't have the time or money to, to pursue an MBA? What are some other avenues we can take? So one of the things I want to get back to is the concept that physicians are executives already. Um, because we, we, we feel like we've been beat down, but you are executives already. And at that level, like, so like anything that I get offered at this level after an MBA or Roger gets offered at this level, it's always going to be like at or near the C-suite. And what that means is that I need to understand financial statements or like financial Excel spreadsheets. I do not need to create them. Yeah. Right. And so I think we get um, flummoxed about like not having business knowledge, but like the business knowledge that we really need to understand is like, how is the sausage made? So we know like what's the input in, what's the input out, how that goes. And then we take our skills of, particularly as an IR, being operations, efficiency, all of this stuff. Every, every single minute of the day is a cost. Yeah. That's what it really comes down to and understanding that. And there are ways to do that without getting an MBA in terms of, like I said, Coursera, which is Coursera. Those are, they have a ton of basic and just free courses all throughout the world that you can go and get a taste for it. Right. There's the Association of, American Association of Physician Leaders, of which, you know, after I got my MBA, I could just sit for their capstone and you have that for leadership stuff, which allows you to spend much less and get like that business basis but ultimately it's really about developing into like okay what do you know and what don't you know like i i am not going to be a cto but i run a tech company you know so it's really about like how are you going to build this out you're doing it with with backtable like what do you know and what don't you know and how do you get the people to help you with that but if you're putting people in place, whether it's in your practice, your OBL and all this stuff, you still need to have a general idea of what they're doing as they oversee it and they present you things. Right. You right. know? So I I feel like that we feel like we're handicapped, but we're not as handicapped as we think. Yeah. Um, and and when we're really talking about business, yes, there's the dollars and cents of it all. Um, you have to understand how the sausage is made and you need to understand CBT codes and all this stuff in terms of like our views and how payment has happened. But really, it's about the next stage, which is the other things, negotiation, you know, understanding, you know, operations, understanding how all of that comes back into the dollars and cents. And yeah. that's what I think in terms of business school, MBA does like, but mm -hmm. just to back it up, if you're thinking about an additional degree, figure out your passion first. It's right. not, it may not be oh, every doctor gets an MBA. Like, it need, you need to be specific about your next halftime, yeah. you know, like, uh, about that. And it might be that, like, hey, listen, I, I, I can't stand these, the gun massacres. I am going to go into policy. Yeah, right. And that's a whole different deal, right? you know, in terms of healthcare policy and stuff. So that's what I would say. And I, and I would say that um, having done an MBA, what it allowed me to do was to articulate better what are my strengths, 
you know, which we don't really have the language around. Like, you know, I think everybody who's an IR is good at operations because they know how to make that efficient. Well, that's not something that I could, you know, like that I could really had the words to articulate that, like, you know, some of my strengths are strategy, operations, marketing and branding and growth. Right. And understanding, well, what does it mean to be growth mindset versus, you know, not, you know? And I think that it gives us a language that allows us to then interact better with the people who do play with the money, wherever that is. Yeah. But also in terms of you, if you want to start a practice, understanding how that financing goes and all that stuff, it, make, it makes it a little bit easier. But I don't, I don't think we're in as detrimental a position as possible. But yes, I agree. There should be some basic business understanding, at least if not in medical school, I think more in the last couple years of residency mm-hmm. in anticipation to interview and apply for jobs of what to look for. Yeah. Roger, any final words before we wrap this Actually, up? Actually, if we have time, I wanted to ask a question yeah. from both of you guys. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's start with Aaron. I mean, it, just for me, I, you know, I know that you started back table and it's just this amazing visual growth of like what you guys accomplished. I, I'm curious, like, what's your, what's your, I mean, I know you're thinking of the MBA. I'm, I'm sure it's related to the back table and the development, but like, what's, what is your end goal? I'm curious. I, are you thinking of selling or just growing it to a certain thing or you have any, um, selling it out to another company or what's your end game with back table? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, I don't, I think we're, for now we're just grow, um, in an, in an organic sort of natural way. Like I was just telling you, we're starting an OBGYN show. Well, that opportunity like I was, I was in a different direction. I was thinking ophthalmology or spine, but we didn't really have a good fit for, um, mm. you know, a host or or content team for for those shows. So even though we wanted to do that, it just wasn't there. The opportunity wasn't there. And then here comes an opportunity with OBGYN with just the right people. And so that's the way each show has developed beyond just our vascular interventional show. And so it's not so like we want to grow in terms of specialty side, you know, specialties. And, and size and bringing on more hosts, but also just evolve the the content itself, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, from episode one to 50 to 100 to 200, the the sound quality is better. The content I feel like is getting better. Our hosting skills, our interviews, like we're, I, I feel like we continue to evolve in just in terms of delivery and uh, distribution. So make, and I was telling you this, Roger, earlier is, helping people find the information they want when they want, when they need it. Right. Yeah. Cause even like Google search now, yeah. if you type something in most, like the whole first page is patient directed content. Mm-hmm. How does a physician find what they're looking for? Unless they know the, the specifics of like a, a paper, you can go on PubMed, but if you want to know how do I build a kyphoplasty practice, yeah. how are you going to find that information? All that anecdotal information. I, I'm the same yeah. way. Then that's whole right. reason I started this. It's just like, I want to save people the problems of like trying to find the information, which is an ocean of, you know, um, yeah, no. Um, can I ask you one more question for Anissa? If that's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. oh, yeah. So my, my question, Anissa is like, you know, so if you pivot from clinical medicine, especially from clinical IR and you go into admin or you run your tech company, are you trapped like from coming back? Because I feel like I worry that like, and it's, I've seen this happen with a couple of people like where, and they were in administration. Like, um, they, I, I knew a guy who was in the Navy. He was an admiral. He did 20, he was a radiologist by training, but did 20 years of administration, came back to 
clinical radiology and was rusty, like was rusty, mm. but he, he got it back eventually. But IR is even more dynamic than that, where we're constantly mm. changing. And, you know, is it possible to get back to clinical medicine? Suppose I go and pivot I, to I, industry and, you know, don't yeah, practice. I think, um, I, I think this is where the entrepreneur side has to come out and time management from MBA. But, you know, it's one of the reasons why I do, I, I went the locums route, right? Because mm. you keep your hands in clinical medicine, but you don't hurt a group by being part of their group and not being able to meet the expectations of, you know, being a partner and all this stuff, having, right. having done that. But the, you have to make a decision about your passion for clinical medicine and where that's going to go. I think a lot of people start thinking about extra degrees and oh, I could go and do this or go and do that. And how great is that? They work for a biotech company and all of that stuff. But, you know, we all got into this to be practicing doctors. And um, those skills are very hard won, fine-tuned, you know, the more you do it skills. And personally, I feel like the more you want to go into leadership or these other things, the more you still are in the trenches and can understand what's going on on the day-to-day for it, that still helps you, even if you back your schedule up to two days a week, you know, one week a month, something like that. My advice is not to ever fully leave clinical until you're really ready to do that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, and and to start to balance the other opportunities and passions that come to you with your clinical time. You know, maybe that's two weeks a month clinical, and then you have two weeks to do all of this other stuff, or you know, for me, the time management skills that I got out of doing the MBA, I do a lot of things through my day, even what in between cases or all of that stuff. It's not, it's not the best. I'd like to just one day sit down and just do CEO stuff for my tech company or just do the fundraising or just do the sales pitches. But, you know, you have to kind of go for it. But I don't, I, I'm not to the point where I, I feel like, particularly for IR, that if you give that up, you know, you'll get your skills back, but there is something to the fact that we do it every day and how mm-hmm. fine-tuned we are. And, you know, you're 18 years out. I'm, I'm more than that. And um, you, you're just better, right? You're just better and faster. And, and, and that also allows you to kind of balance it. So uh, the clinical question, um, and also, you know, there is this idea out there that like you get the MBA and then you leave clinical practice. It's like you've gone to the dark side or you're a suit mm-hmm. now or you're whatever. And I think there's gravitas amongst our colleagues that if you're still dealing with the pains of an EHR and dealing with the, you know, inefficiencies of a system of, of you know, of uh, operational systems and stuff that that you can bring your MBA into helping that situation and not hurting it. Yeah, I think that's solid advice, Anissa, because I cut back to one week a month, Roger. I, I just cover oh, my local right? group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm locums. I just cover them one week a month, no call. Got no it. nights, yeah, yeah. no weekends. It's pretty amazing. And I can just focus on back table, but I still feel like I got one foot in yeah. and it helps spur ideas. It helps continue to, you know, network. And then I can actually have a conversation clinically yeah. um, about something. I don't feel totally out of the loop. I've gone back and forth. I think at most I might take six months off if I want to focus on something. But because I did take a break from hospital medicine for a couple of years, Mm-hmm. Where I hadn't done any hospital cases, you know, like, you know, thrombectomies or nothing that was, you know, it was all outpatient stuff. So it was all pretty basic. 
And when I came back to the hospital, I was very nervous about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it did come back to me pretty Came quick. back to, okay, yeah, that's good to plus know. You have, you have partners, right? You have yeah, people yeah. that you can reach out to. You have help. You have helplines. So I think, you know, when, and once you're, and I definitely felt more comfortable, you know, being seven, eight years out in practice versus, I don't know if I could have done that two or three years out. Yeah. Right? I was, I so you had a good foundation. Free. Yeah, and it was and just guys, getting used to the devices yeah. and anything that right. you had to like whatever. Okay, that's good. right. That's I good mean, to know. Think about how we're always learning new devices, right? And some people yeah, are always yeah. learning new procedures. So you yeah. just you have the foundation, and you got to cut yourself some slack, right? You may not be perfect when you come back, like you felt you felt like you once were, mm-hmm. but that's okay because you went and learned a new skill. You went yeah. and learned a new skill that other people didn't learn, yeah. and and that's going to help you. What like Anissa keeps saying over and over again is like, you got to follow your passion and what you what's next for your life, not worry about everybody else and what they're doing and mm-hmm. what they might think of you either. That's the other big hurdle to get over is like, like Anissa kind of just said is like, don't worry about what other people think. If you're confident that you can come back to clinical medicine after a year taking off and 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 be just fine, I you know I know you can. I, I'm sure you can. I'm sure most people can. If you're good before, you're gonna you're gonna be good after. If that if if you have the passion for it though, but don't go back to it if you don't if you're gonna do it half half ass right because yeah. that was my whole thing is like I don't want to go back and then I'm not really into it. So yeah, it's I think it's just you yeah. gotta kind of weigh it out. Though you know, it's so funny. Like the reason I asked that is like you know, and I was at was at Penn and I was we met a lot of people and we we're talking about our experiences and we're, I was talking to some of my colleagues who are like in management in other industries that are a little more volatile. You know, they had to lay off like 200 people. Like, and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. He even like great people got laid off. And it was just one of those things that I always wondered if like transitioning to like the business side, how volatile even being a CMO of a startup would be, you know, like, hey, we could be doing good or, and then, you know, I'm sure we always have our skills to fall back on, but is it once you, is it like a, hey, once you go too far, you're like beyond the edge of return, but it, like, it just doesn't sound like, that would be the case, but well, I mean, again, you'll you'll learn this in negotiations, but right, like everything is negotiable, and one of the things that's negotiable is how much clinical time you you still have, yeah. um, always for any position. And but I mean, a CMO of a startup versus a CMO that's uh, of a company that's eight years out and gone through seed, series A, series B are two different things mm-hmm. um, overall as well. So you know, I I would never say. And we, our, our company, all of the, all of the founders for Zip Data, we still have our day jobs oh, um, and we have built it and are, are bringing on our, our first small enterprise client. But you also have to, you know, what you learn, you know, just, just through the grind as, as, you know, Aaron has learned how to become this podcaster and stuff. You know, what I've learned is that a digital health company, you know, takes eight years to go. You know, and that's very different. You don't know that till you get into the grind of it all. But, you know, some of that I learned by being an alumni and going back to alumni events at Kellogg and stuff. You know, like there's, I still am learning from Kellogg. You know, there's a, an elective to my fair professors to an international elective, and it's in Portugal. I'm going to Portugal, like as an awesome. alumni. And, yeah. and I'm going to pick grapes and make wine, <laughs> but, um, but it's going to be cool. Yeah. And, um, and I'm going to meet a whole new set of alumni. That come yeah. from a whole different world. And and those are the connections that matter. And, you know, people have said your network is your net worth. And that's 100 percent true, you mm-hmm. know, because those it's always, you know, it's what we've always learned from before. But it is who, you know, and that comes as we get older through 
you know, shared passion, shares values, shared goals, you know, and principles, all of that stuff where you get to do that. And, you know, Wharton will offer that to you when you, as you go through it, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. It's, but you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's like a league of your own. It, it's supposed to be hard. If it was, if it wasn't hard, everybody would do it. Right. Mm. You know, so, but it, the clinical thing, I'd keep that in any way, shape or form until you're really ready yeah, yeah. to say, I can live without being a, doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just diagnostic, I mean, even just your diagnostic yeah, yeah. skills, you know, I mean, that's, I have this VA gig yeah. where it's like, it's, it's teleradiology. And as long as I do yeah. like two shifts a month, like it, you know, I can yeah, hold on to that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So. And that's a unique advantage of IR, right? Yeah. Is to have that DR training yeah. that you can always, you know, if you're injured, if you're whatever, you know, um, life, life can change in a second as yeah. we've discussed. And, and to be able to have that flexibility is something that's there. I mean, I couldn't, I could do DR again, I suppose, uh, if I really was like forced to do it, it will come back. Uh, I would be very scared to do it myself because I've been in the 100% IR world for a long time. Yeah. Um, but that is something that for early and mid-career people to consider as they go through, um, yeah. because you just you just never know, you know, a, a car accident happens, something happens where you can't wear the light anymore. Do you have the fallback? And it's a unique advantage for IR to have that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you guys so much. This is a great discussion. And um, Roger, looking forward to seeing what you got coming out and, and following your story. And, and Anissa, thank you again for coming on. There's yeah. a lot of great pearls in there. So appreciate it. Yeah. No, thanks, Aaron, for having us. It's just yeah, great thanks to so much. have this. It's a great episode to have. I think I wish this episode was here a year ago. You know, yeah. so that I can like. But, but then you wouldn't have your YouTube channel. That's probably yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> there. See? Yeah. 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 yeah it'd be a nice so 101 for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Things happen for the way they're supposed to happen. Yeah. I have a YouTube yeah. channel. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.